Hello and welcome to another episode of Every Square Inch, where we take the time each week to engage every square inch of God's world with God's world view. My name is Robert Cunningham, and I want to jump right into our topic today because there is so much to say. I debated talking about it because it honestly doesn't apply to a lot of people. I think there's probably a lot of people that are unaware of this situation, but I do think it indirectly applies to all of us and represents a huge issue that Christianity is facing in our time. And the topic is the deconversion story of Rhett and Link. I'm going to offer my response to them specifically, but I want to use it as the opportunity to speak to the phenomenon of deconversion stories which are coming out with increased frequency. Um, let, me, let me briefly set the stage for those unfamiliar. Uh, Red and Link are YouTube celebrities, incredibly talented and popular personalities online. Uh, but they got their start in the subculture of evangelical campus ministry during the peak years of Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, which is now known as Crew. They were comedic legends, really. Now, for those not familiar with campus ministry culture, you might be wondering what campus ministry and comedic legends have to do with one another. Fair question. And looking back, probably one might say a fair critique. But during the 80s and 90s, high school and college outreach ministries began imploring a technique to make Christianity more relatable to, I suppose you could say, youth culture. And what it did was create this subculture of humor and entertainment where at these gatherings there would be silly skits and videos and icebreakers and these types of things. I mean, there's a lot of cheesy, painful stuff, but there was some legit comedy and entertainment in the Young Life Campus Crusade uh, megachurch youth group world. There, th- these were some, some serious um, productions going on. And so before YouTube and social media, surprisingly, the college and youth Christian subculture was kind of leading the way in the type of entertainment that is now popular. Well, within that world, there were two megastars in particular, uh, Rhett McLaughlin and Link Neal, who are known as Rhett and Link. As college students, they began doing their entertainment for their local campus meetings, and they were so talented and hilarious that they ended up doing the entertainment at the big national conference for crew. And it was at those larger conferences where they began to really become popular. They ended up going on staff with crew as full-time campus ministry workers, and crew continued to capitalize on their talent, even creating evangelism programs around their comedy. Uh, Then YouTube became a thing, and they put out some of the first videos to ever go viral on YouTube, and Rhett and Link became a sensation. Now, long story short, they ended up going all in on their entertainment careers and have since gone on to YouTube fame. Their channel has over 16 million followers, um, very popular podcasts, social media, all of it. They are incredibly popular with lucrative careers, and it all started as a couple zany college students doing outlandish skits at a campus ministry meeting. Cool story. And for Christians who knew that part of their story, it was particularly cool. Here are two legit conservative evangelical Christians who happen to be some of the biggest social media stars in the entire country. 
Uh, Rhett and Link didn't talk openly about their faith, but the content they were producing was good, clean, fun that, you know, my kids, for example, love to watch. And I got to tell my kids that Rhett and Link were followers of Jesus. That, you know, that gives Jesus some serious street cred for a Christian parent. Part of the problem, as we will get to later. Well, then a few weeks ago, Rhett and Link recorded a four-part podcast where they finally did speak publicly about their Christian faith, but it wasn't what Christians expected or certainly wanted to hear. Instead, it served as their public renouncement of Jesus and the Christian convictions they once believed and followed. Now, these deconstruction stories are nothing new, as we will discuss in a moment, but this one in particular has seemed to resonate deeply. I think in part because Rhett and Link were some of the few Christians who, whose popularity extended far beyond the Christian subculture into mainstream celebrity culture. But I think also, honestly, because of the way they so openly, skillfully, and thoughtfully took the public down the path of their deconversion and issued what can only be labeled as a scathing insider critique of Christianity, of Scripture, and most significantly of Jesus himself. Now, there are obviously a ton of reactions coming out, and I hesitated to add my own, but I have had so many people ask me to do a podcast on this, and I know that this has been deeply unsettling for many Christians and highly celebratory for many opposed to Christianity. So I have decided to offer my response. And to be candid, I have been a bit disappointed by some of the responses I have seen. So I suppose I can't complain about these responses without myself taking up the challenge. So that's what this is going to be. And as I got into my thoughts, I've I've decided to do this in two parts. Before I get to Rhett and Link, I feel the need to take a step back and discuss the bigger picture. The deconstruction of faith is becoming a common theme in our culture, and we better get used to stories like this because they are only going to continue. This is the nature of the post-Christian secular age we live in. So before I get to Rhett and Link specifically, I think it would be beneficial to explain where we are as a culture and why these stories are taking place. Now, let me stay up front for the sake of intellectual honesty that the following analysis is borrowed material actually borrowed material of borrowed material. I believe the most important philosopher of our time is Charles Taylor. Uh, Taylor published what many believe to be the seminal work on the secular world we live in entitled A Secular Age. Now, if you want to give A Secular Age a try, more power to you. Uh, Many have tried, many have failed. I've dabbled, but have not come close to exhausting it. Thankfully, however, James K. Smith has done this world a great service by taking Taylor's work and making it accessible to normal people like us. His book, How Not to Be Secular, is an incredibly helpful primer to a secular age, and I definitely would not give Taylor a try without Jamie Smith's book close at hand. Now, when you view Rhett and Link's story, along with the many other deconversion stories taking place, through the lens of Charles Taylor, they become far less unsettling and, to state it crassly, even predictable. Now, that is stating it crassly, by the way. And let me say this, just in case by some crazy happenstance that they end up listening to this, I know their journey away from the faith was incredibly real, 
um, painful, emotional, all of those things. And I don't in any way doubt their sincerity. And the reason I say that is because when you start treating people's stories through a diagnostic lens, it can come across as depersonalized and lacking empathy. That's not my intention at all. And I hope when I actually engage their stories, I will um, be as humble and charitable as possible. But I do think it's helpful to see the bigger picture of this cultural moment, knowing that all of our stories exist within a greater culture framework that impacts us in many ways that we don't even see. So for instance, Rhett and Link had a good and helpful critique of Christian culture that was important for me to hear. And, and I don't think they offered that critique while doubting the sincerity of my faith as if I'm nothing more than a naive product of my culture. And I hope that they, or more than, more than them, because reality is, is probably just, good, not, they're not gonna listen to it, but those listening who themselves have left the faith will hear my critique of secular culture without assuming that I think that you are just a naive byproduct of it. Now, with that said, I do think it's important to understand the nature of our secular world, which is yielding stories like this. You see, this is about much more than celebrity Christians renouncing their faith. This is very personal to every Christian I know. Every Christian can name someone they deeply love, a friend, a sibling, a child, a grandchild, who has abandoned the faith. And every Christian, if they are honest with themselves, wrestles with their own doubts. At least every Christian who ventures out into the real world. The reality is that a new age is upon us, a secular age, where unbelief, not belief, is not only plausible, but the default position, where transcendent faith has been replaced by imminent doubt, where stories like Rat and Link should come as a surprise to absolutely no one. This is the nature of the secular. Allow me to explain, and then I promise we will get to Rhett and Link specifically. But hang with me through the philosophy stuff, uh, not only because you'll need that in order to understand my response to them, but because Christians really need to understand this stuff. They need to be equipped to understand the world we're living in. And I would humbly suggest my friends of unbelief really should be willing to assess their worldview of unbelief, just as they challenge us to assess our worldview of belief. So what does it mean that we live in a secular age? And what does that have to do with stories like Rhett and Lynx? When we use the word secular, we typically think of it in terms of secular versus religious spaces. So for instance, there are secular schools and there are religious schools. Uh, but Charles Taylor argues that there has been a shift in secularity that is more all-encompassing. No longer secular spaces, but an actual secular age. An age where the life of unbelief is not only plausible, but almost instinctual. Now, by unbelief, I'm not talking about the more militant forms that we see in people like Richard Dawkins and the New Atheists. Taylor speaks of more normal folks inhabiting Western societies living lives of functional atheism, even if they wouldn't identify themselves as such, living lives for all intents and purposes as if there are no transcendent realities. Now, it's important to understand that this is a first for human civilization. That comes as a shock for modern Westerners, but unbelief in something transcendent, 
a God, gods, something ultimate, something out there beyond us. Unbelief in that has been wholly implausible until now. Even a few hundred years ago, unbelief was not an option. So how is it that we have so quickly replaced belief with unbelief as the default position? Taylor points to the Enlightenment and the progress of modernity. Now, Taylor and those who agree with him are unfairly viewed as wholesale critics of the Enlightenment, but that's not fair. I love the Enlightenment. I'm about to critique the Enlightenment, but let me say this. I love the Enlightenment and its advancements. I have no desire to go back to pre-Enlightenment healthcare, for example, as we are looking at the coronavirus. I'm glad for the progress in science. But like every cultural movement of fallen humanity, there are some unforeseeable negative consequences, and the Enlightenment is no different. The key shift that took place was when faith was replaced by doubt. Now, my unbelieving friends would say, no, 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 faith was replaced by reason. But I'm defining reason as doubt, and I think I'm being fair to the principles of the Enlightenment. Rene Descartes, the father of Enlightenment thinking, um, advocated for a process of skepticism, which came to be known as Cartesian doubt. So Descartes, Cartesian doubt. Cartesian doubt is very simple. Doubt everything I believe until I arrive at empirical truth. And this, of course, is the basis of the scientific method. And that shift in thinking did, in fact, lead to incredible advancements in science, medicine, technology, and so forth. All good things. But what happened is that this Cartesian doubt and overemphasis on human reasoning took over as an all-encompassing worldview and created a culture with doubt as its foundation. And it's this culture that Taylor skillfully analyzes in a secular age. Taylor defines the secular age as an age marked by instinctual doubt, a disenchanted world where we live as functional unbelievers detached from higher transcendent and supernatural realities. His term for this is the eminent frame. Eminent means indwelling, inherent, operating within. And this is how we now view existence in contrast to transcendence, which is the view of our existence as dependent upon a higher transcendent reality such as a god now our view of existence is essentially that this is all there is. Every civilization has looked upward for meaning, purpose, and function. But in the secular age, we look inward to human reason and doubt. The natural worldview is pressuring out the supernatural worldview. And what this means is for the first time, religion is merely an option alongside the other option of unbelief. And taking it further, the option of unbelief seems more plausible and rational inside this imminent frame that constantly reinforces the virtue of doubt. Now, what this means for religion and Christianity specifically is a polarity. People who go against the secular age and hold to the transcendent convictions that were the original foundation of Western culture and people who embrace the secular age and hold to the newer foundation of Western culture, doubt and reason. What's going away is the middle. This assumed belief, the cultural Christianity that merely takes faith commitments for granted. That's not an option for any of us any longer. 
Everyone now feels the pressure of the secular age. Faith is no longer an assumption. It is a deeply contested commitment, both externally and internally, meaning it is constantly being contested externally and internally in our own thoughts and minds and longings. And for some people, for many people, like Rhett and Link, that faith commitment is just too much. In the past, friends like Rhett and Link could have merely carried on with a presumed-upon faith, but that was not an option for them in our age. You could hear it in the anguish of their story, particularly Rhett, as he takes his beliefs through the sifting process of Cartesian doubt, a process his faith simply could not endure. Simply put, our culture no longer affords us the luxury of presumption. If you're going to believe this, you're going to have to actually believe this. And to their credit, I have so much that I appreciate about their story, by the way, that I'll get to in the next episode. To their credit, they were honest with themselves and the rest of the world and confessed that they could not subscribe to their faith commitments any longer. But to those who see themselves in Rhett and Link's story, or if by some crazy chance they listen to this, now a new dilemma emerges. The transcendence that we've rejected won't leave us alone. And now we come to Charles Taylor's critique of the secular age. The question of questions is the inescapable question that will continue to haunt our secular age, whether the age of doubt is telling us the truth. Is the Cartesian doubt that Rhett skillfully displayed as he took us through the deconstruction of his faith, is Enlightenment skepticism sustainable as an all-encompassing worldview? That is to say, outside the science lab, is this method sustainable or even possible for life as we know it? Now, Christian philosophers rightly argue that it's not even possible inside the science lab because the process of doubt depends upon uh, transcendent uh, laws and constants like logic, math, uh, trust the future will act the same as the past and present and all that. But I digress. Don't get derailed by that. The question is whether enlightenment doubt, exclusive human reasoning, is sustainable or even possible for life as we know it. Taylor argues it is not. Taylor argues against the narrative that the enlightenment is humanity's great coming of age. It's, it's the arrogance of modernity that he contests. This idea that through science, reason, technology, and ultimately through a disposition of doubt rather than faith, we are slowly disenchanting the world, replacing religious superstition with modern advancements, filling in the gaps of mystery that we once ascribed to God, and on and on the global march of modernism goes until our world is fully disenchanted and naturalism replaces supernaturalism. That story that modern Westerners in the back of their minds suspect to be true is proving itself to be our great deception. Taylor admits that modernity has made a remarkable attempt at disenchanting our world of its transcendence, but he contends that in the end it is a vain attempt. He contends that the secular world we have created is a haunted world, haunted by transcendence that we simply cannot shake. 
He calls it cracks in the secular, cracks in the secular age, cracks in the imminent frame that we've constructed where transcendence still breaks through. Now, where it seems Rhett and Link have landed is a perfect example of this. They are not, it doesn't seem, to be hardened atheists. Instead, the language they use is hopeful agnostics. I'll engage that more next week, but it seems to me that this amounts to postmodern spirituality. Postmodernism, of course, is a reaction to modernism. And this, what I've been talking about, this strident search for truth that never yields the certainty it promises. And so postmodernism is essentially saying truth is subjective at best, unknowable at worst. It recognizes that Cartesian doubt never yields Cartesian certainty that we long for, so it turns to a kind of mystic uncertainty, a quest for your own transcendence, and an Oprah-like spirituality that vainly tries to fill the void left by the rejection of transcendence. What it is is the aftermath of our attempt to rid ourselves of transcendent truth while wrestling with the reality that transcendent truth won't rid itself of us. But listen, we don't have to get into postmodernism to see this. The most committed atheists can never live as though their disbelief is true. Things like justice, love, purpose, logic, morality. Go back and listen to the podcast I did on the problem of evil and suffering, how I said that it's actually a problem for the unbeliever just as much as it's a problem for the believer. And you'll see what I mean. All of these things are transcendent truths breaking through the secular age, truths that we live according to even while rejecting their origins. Transcendent realities are as inescapable as physical realities. To deny them is to deny what we can see and taste and touch. And this all leads to a new crisis that the secular age is faced with. Now, the secularist is forced to doubt their doubts. Let me return to a poem that I wrote that I quoted a few episodes ago. The poem is about a function on death and resurrection, but I thought about it again because I wrote it while I was digesting Jamie Smith and Charles Taylor's work. And so I speak to uh, the dilemma of death from the secularist perspective. Let me quote it again, not the whole thing, but just this portion. What I do is I ask the question of all questions. There, there is not a greater transcendent question than what to do with death. So here's what I say. What will you make of this cruel reality? What will you do with your own mortality? Now I engage the secular answer. The cynic says nothing, for nothing awaits. No meaning, no purpose, no heavenly fate. Fortunate dust, that's all we are. Borrowed matter of a distant star. There is no soul, there is no hope, just vain existence with which to cope. You had your turn with this thing called life. Now fall asleep to the nothingness night. Now that's death within the imminent frame. A pointless, meaningless existence, fortunate dust from a borrowed star. But then I respond. Yet this cold, hard dogma is not without cracks. Easy to imagine, impossible to enact. We all carry on with longings undaunted. Perhaps we are secular, but the secular is haunted. Can you really obey subjective morality? Can you really inhabit a pointless reality? Can lovers embrace as though love is a lie? Are you not troubled 
by the question, why? That's what you're left with in the imminent frame. Uh, subjective morality, pointless reality, love is a lie. No answer to the question, why? And then I say this, these seeds of transcendence are there for a reason. They whisper God's presence. They echo of Eden. They're hounding. They're haunting. They're speaking to you. They're telling a story. You long to be true. And therein lies the new dilemma. What if the story you long to be true, but you no longer believe is true, is actually true indeed? Jamie Smith points to the opening of Julian Barnes' amazing memoir entitled Nothing to be Frightened of. He was an atheist turned agnostic. And he opens his memoir with this poignant line, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. This is the new dilemma pressing down upon the souls of our secular age. Our culture misses God, whether they know it or not. Not as a therapeutic crutch, but as an absolute reality that we cannot escape. If there is a God, and I believe there is, then try as we may, we will never be able to escape that truth. And instead, that truth will continue to disturb our unbelief. And so the dilemma of the secular age is the dilemma of doubt, both for the believer and the unbeliever alike. Rhett and Link have articulated the dilemma of doubt for the believer. And in the next episode, I hope to charitably engage with their arguments. But make no mistake, disbelief is not the escape of doubt. It only introduces a new dilemma that I will close by letting Jamie Smith himself articulate. Quote, the so-called unbeliever is now confronted by a stubborn sense of something moreness that cannot be squelched. I love that term that he made up. A stubborn sense of something moreness that cannot be squelched. He says this, the secularist's dark night of the soul is the jarring experience of a sleepless night where he finds himself inexplicably asking, what if I have a soul? Thanks for listening. I know that was a lot this week, but I just felt the need to have the larger discussion before engaging Rhett and Link specifically. We'll do that, Lord willing, on next week's episode of Every Square Inch. Mm-hmm.